think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. On this episode of the show, we take a walk through the woods with a Wisconsin County Forester, Mike Amon. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 179. All right, welcome back to the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. We have an excellent show coming up for you with my friend Mike Amon, Wisconsin County Forester, and we'll get to that very soon. But first, thank you to the Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. A quick reminder, this month's giveaway includes a gift basket of sorts, Onyx Elite subscription card, a bumper and reusable solo cup from Yukonuba, a fresh duplicate copy of Shooting Sportsman addressed to yours truly, and a few other things from Piner's Grouse Camp and Birdshot Podcast. That's the June giveaway. We'll be announcing that winner probably on the next episode. You could be eligible for all monthly Patreon giveaways by signing up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. You can sign up for as few as $5 a month. I will send you some Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers as a thank you, and you will be eligible for those giveaways and other discounts like the ones we've got for Gumleaf Boots and Upland Institute all Patreon patrons of the Birdshot podcast are eligible for those discounts. So thanks for considering that. And next up, a reminder, we are still running the gun fitting giveaway with Del Whitman. That is going to go through July 14th. So if you're listening to this before July 14th and you are interested in a gun fitting with Del Whitman, which means you will have to get to Traverse City, Michigan, all you have to do is send me an email, nick at birdshotpodcast.com, put gun fit or fitting in the subject line. Let me know you are interested and we are accepting all entries through July 14th for that. For more details, you can check out the episode we just did with Del Whitman, which is episode number 177 of the Birdshot podcast. And don't forget, anybody out there listening can always save 20% on their next Onyx Hunt subscription using the promo code BSP20. 
That's BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. Onyx, of course, being an invaluable tool in my upland bird hunting pursuits, without a doubt. It's where I take and apply a lot of the things that I learn from people like our guest today, Mike Mon. Over the years, I've gotten to know Mike. He has shared a lot of knowledge and information with me about forestry, grouse and woodcock habitat, cover, the way he looks at and analyzes forest, timber stands, regeneration, all those sorts of things that I've become more and more interested in as a grouse and woodcock hunter. And I will say, based on past episodes we've done around this topic, I believe the interest level is quite high among listeners. So I don't think the episode needs a whole lot of setup beyond that. But I will say that the more I have learned about forest management, forestry, and the forest I hunt grouse and woodcock in, while it has made me a better hunter in many ways, it has also, and perhaps more importantly, really increased the enjoyment level and the satisfaction I get out of my hunts. And I'm pretty confident you will pull something out of this conversation with Mike that we have on the show today. We talk about a lot of stuff. We catch up a bit. We talk about turkey hunting in the North Woods and the Big Woods, as Mike did a lot of that this spring. And he's been one of my turkey hunting mentors. He was on the first turkey hunt I ever went on a few years ago. And he's definitely somebody I have leaned on as I have explored that in recent years. But even more so, Mike has been a go-to resource for me when it comes to grouse and woodcock habitat and looking through the trees seeing the forest, so to speak, deepening my understanding of what components make up the forest, aka good grouse and woodcock habitat, how to find it, how to hunt it, and how it's created and sustainably managed. So as you will soon find out, getting to know your county forester, especially if they are a grouse hunter, can be extremely beneficial in many ways. And without further ado, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot podcast, Wisconsin County Forester, Mike, come on. Welcome to the Birdshot Podcast. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Let's get right down to business. What uh, What was the forester doing today? Were you in the woods today, Mike? Uh, actually, I was not quite in the woods. I was actually in the Barrens in uh, within oh. the county forest system. We were. Uh, I met with. Um, the DNR wildlife guy and uh, one of my coworkers, and we're developing these uh, new barrens and maintaining existing barrens for sharp tails and providing sort of a unique uh, system within the county forest system. So we were out in the barrens talking about the work that needs to get done and and what's working, what isn't, and just you know a lot of scheduling to talk about you know site maintenance, burning, and road construction to kind of make these properties and these these habitats, you know, as functional and as easy to maintain as possible. So yeah, it was, it was fun. We have two, two barrens that we're, we have on the property and one's new and one's uh, just getting opened up completely. So uh, we were, we were talking barrens habitat. Excellent. Well, I think I, I would, I might have a tendency to sort of move on and sort of do some more housekeeping stuff, but since we sort of dove in there and we're talking barrens habitat, I'll take care of the intro and the intro to the show. Let's, let's dive in a little deeper here. What is Barrens habitat, Mike. Yeah, Barrens is basically this mix of grass, shrubs, and trees. And historically, I I'm, I work in Bayfield County. Um, the Northwest Sands is a, a few million acres. It's this sandy outwash plain that extends from you know in across Northwest Wisconsin. And within that, historically, there was a lot of fire. And so with that sandy soil, droughty soil, and, and just the natural system was it burned a lot. So historically, 
the forest I worked on wasn't forest at all. It was mostly open brush. And so obviously with fire suppression and just land use changes, we have grown trees there instead of uh, maintain wildfire. So Barrens is, is an open landscape. And historically, we had a whole lot more of it uh, where I work in, in the, this part of the state. And so there's a lot of species that are associated with barrens that historically were here that are in tough shape, uh, sharp-tailed grouse included, but a number of other species, upland sandpiper, uh, to name one of uh, a lot of them that, um, you know, we just don't have many of those birds left or those species left. So we're on the county forest trying to maintain some of these barrens. So it's sort of this, this blended mix of grass, lands, uh, shrubs, and trees. Yeah, very cool. Something that I have, I, I've talked about a little bit here on the podcast over the years, and I've gotten a lot more exposure to it, spending more time in northwest Wisconsin. We've got the family cabin over there, and um, I I was pretty well unaware of, of <laughs> what Barron's habitat was and some of the species that inhabit that, but now I'm, I'm quite familiar. I've uh, spent some time walking that stuff. Very interesting, uh, especially as it is sort of scattered about this area of the state that you primarily think of just totally forested you know if it's if it's public land or or not you know a lot of forest coverage in that part of the state but uh again with that bit of historical perspective you get the understanding the relationship the landscape had with fire and what these open areas can look like now it's interesting because this conversation that we'll get into a little bit today you being a county forester how does the how does a baron's relationship work with being a county forester in that obviously one of your objectives is to grow marketable products, trees, timber for sale, for revenue. We can talk about some of the dynamics, but how does, how does that relationship with the barons and what you do as a county forester, how do those dynamics play out? Yeah, it's a little kind of an unnatural connection because uh, my job is to grow trees and now here we are creating areas where there are very few trees. And so how do those things go together? It, so I think it's over time, hopefully we're getting better at sort of uh, managing holistically the entire system and recognizing that there's these species that aren't present and we have a lot of ownership in this historic barrens area. So I think it's educating the public, educating our forestry committee and, um, you know, seeing where we can provide opportunity to provide these open areas. And, it, and it's, it's a fraction of the total. I mean, the county forest yeah. is 1,700 170,000 acres is what I mean is what I'm trying to say. So we're going to try and provide 2,000 acres of permanent open barrens. So it's a very small percentage of the total. Yeah. And the good thing about these species that utilize barrens, they will also use young forests. So we can provide a lot of working timberlands adjacent to these permanent cores. And so by having a small relatively small 1,000 acre opening can provide a lot of habitat and then as you have strategic um, management around it called rolling barrens, you can still have productive timberlands still as a, as a part of the system because large clear cuts, young forests, there's a lot of species that interact with the barrens habitat and they use young forests, Kirkland warbler and uh, golden wing warbler. And so there's a lot of species that will kind of interface with wor- young working forests and the barrens habitat. So I think being strategic about where we open up these acres, meanwhile, still providing a lot of high productive you know, working forests. So they, they do work together. I think it's just having that conversation, being open-minded to where it makes sense to do these, these barrens habitats. And that's where we're kind of fitting into the DNR 
and they, they have a plan to kind of connect these landscapes across the Northwest Sands. And, you know, some yeah. of these areas have been identified as critical areas to create these, these new barrens habitats. So I think we can have working forest lands and provide some, uh, a unique opportunity for these barren species. Yeah. The rolling barrens concept is, I'm only familiar with that based on some information that you shared with me a couple of years as I was kind of learning more about it, but a very interesting creative way. And I think it's, it highlights a couple of things here. One of them being this long-term outlook that you as a, as a forester have for the landscape. And this is something that I wanted to mention this right away. I, you recently were on a podcast. Um, what is that? It's the Wisconsin BHA podcast. You remember what the yep. name of it is? I think it's like the, the Wisconsin BHA, BHA report, report or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So great podcast. Folks can check that out. I'll, I'll throw a link to that in the show notes. I listened to it and Mike and I, I, I've known Mike for a handful of years now, years now we've hunted together and I, this is kind of funny, Mike, cause I, I've thought about interviewing you often enough cause of the in, interesting conversations we have over the years, but then it's, you know, I kind of like to keep some of my secrets, you know, now that I'm exposing you to the, to the audience of the Birdshot podcast, you know, your, your mailbox might be full and you might not have as much time for me and my questions, Mike. <laughs> Yeah, well, I have a non-disclosure agreement with Nick on uh, any all, any and all of this intel that I may or may not know. So I think it's uh, your secret's safe with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but anyways, in the in that podcast, you guys dove deep into really the county forests and talked a lot about some of the forestry topics and ideas that we'll get into here. But again, that long-term outlook, which I think as a maybe as a upland bird hunter, or you know, I think in in some ways as rough grouse and woodcock hunters, if you do it long enough and you get in tune with forestry practices and how that, um, how that benefits and, and sustains hunting, you have maybe a longer term outlook than some hunters or some other categories of hunters. But again, we're talking 10 years, you know, the 10 years, the number that comes to mind, but you're looking at things like on a 40 year rotation, growing trees, knowing that you can't cut them for 40 years. Talk a little bit about how you, how you analyze the landscape through that long of a of a timeline, even though historically speaking, it's, it's a pretty short window of time, but to, to me and you and the pace of everyday life, it seems like an eternity. Uh, yeah. Excellent point. Yeah. Long-term thinking is not necessarily, uh, how humans are wired. It's like mm. everything gets faster and faster these days. Like, what can you do for me right now? Yep. And so then it's like, okay, how do we look into like the rolling barons part won't be fully implemented until like 2080, I mean, like the, the amount of moving parts we are trying to plan for to set up this rolling barrens to be successful is super complicated and takes patience and a lot of planning. And, you know, being a long-term landowner, I mean, we are in a position, fortunately, where we can take the time to look into the future. And uh, even us, you know, as we're regenerating stands, it's like, how's it doing right now? And when do we need to, what do we need to do to go in to make sure that it's going to, you know, be you know, and, uh, you know, the stocking is going to be in good shape and we're going to have trees uh, there to harvest into the future. But I think part of it is just the longer I'm in this world and the longer that I get to, the stuff I look at every day is just sort of 50 year rotations, thinnings yeah. every 10 or 15 years. So I think you kind of get in the world of we're just going to we've owned this land for 80 or 90 years already. And uh, it's, you know, the, the data came to me as rotation ages and and the forest has been inventoried. And so I think it's it's just routine for me to look at and say, all right, we just had a timber sale, schedule that for 2085. And, you know, that, that's just sort of the world I live in or, you know, next thing yeah. is 2050. And so I think it's, 
you know, it's nice because it is, if you try and manage timber for, you know, immediate, you know, revenue, it's all going to be gone and be like, okay, we cashed out now what? And so I think having the county forest system and some of these public lands that, you know, have long-term ownership, have 20-year management plans that are continually renewed, it sort of, it it sets you up for long-term thinking. But uh, patience is tough, even when you're sort of assessing what's working and what's not. And just even the rolling barons concept hasn't really been done yet. So we don't even know the best way to implement the rolling barons. And we're, we're, I mean, that's what we were talking about today. Do we do a pie shape? Do we, you know, the size of the cuts, you know, locations within the zones? It's a lot of theoretical, like what's going to work, what isn't. And, and the nice thing is we can pivot and move and adapt as we go, but it's, uh, you want things to occur so you can sort of make the informed decision. And other times it just takes so long to figure out what is working that it's sort of this blend of short term and long term. And it's, it's, it's definitely not the nature of human humans, but I think in the system of forestry, fortunately, we've kind of set it up to be a little bit easier to do that. Yeah, that's cool. And, and again, I mean, on the other hand, the best you can do essentially is make a, a long-term plan and then adjust, adjust yep. and adapt as you move. I mean, that's that's really all we can do. And that's that's how you at least you've got an objective, something you're working towards. And as new information comes, you take that in and you alter your decision making as necessary. Yeah. And I, just to quickly add, we're doing even internally, but we're doing some investments now to just get baseline data and just and know that we won't look at that stuff for five years or 10 years, you know, forest growth, forest composition, harvest success, objectives, measuring the young forest development. A lot of this stuff takes, like I said, a lot of patience, but we're setting up and doing investments and, you know, it's, it's going to take a while to, to realize that. But I think some of this stuff, the best time to do it was five years ago or 10 years ago. So better late than never. But, you know, I think at least on the forest I work at, we're sort of like patient about making investments strategically to kind of pay off into the future. And I think that's important to kind of keep making sure you're doing as good a management as possible. Yeah, very cool. Well, we're going to we're going to come back to probably some forestry stuff and maybe some bearings conversation, but at this point I would like to let's get a little up to speed on on Mike. You grew up in southern Wisconsin, right? I did. Yeah, the Madison area, yep. Madison area and early exposure to the outdoors, even you've, you've been hunting and fishing for a long time. Yeah, I my dad was a big hunter, is a big hunter and uh um we grew up tagging along with dad squirrel hunting and scouting turkeys and chopping yep. he loves to put up firewood so we uh yeah i grew up going out on mostly private land some public land but he was a big uh, he brought the three boys into the woods and we all took to it so we just grew up doing all of it as, as long as i could remember we were out in the woods tagging along with dad how did the forestry thing come about is that something you you were chopping firewood one day and decide you're gonna be a forester <laughs> No, I was sort of aimless and lacked ambition as a kid. I think my parents were a little worried about, what are you going to do, Mike? And, uh, well, I kind of liked being outside. You know, I started with the basics, which in hindsight, I'm so glad I did. And, you know, finance or medical or, you know, just like, what are all these things? Okay, you got to get a high paying job or just you got to, you know, get after it. And I'm thinking, yeah. man, I like being outside. In high school, I took an environmental studies class and that really was like, kind of opened my eyes to natural resources. And my dad worked for the DNR. He he worked in natural okay. resources. So, I think I had a good foundation of like just natural resource management and being exposed to that. And then I, like I said, that class in high school, I sort of resonated with it and said, I said, you know, let's not overcomplicate this. I think I want to work outside in the natural resources. So initially when I went to school, I was thinking of maybe wildlife or forestry. And I took my first forestry class and I just fell in love with forestry and 
never looked back. Very cool. And and so we don't need to necessarily go through every every turn and and twist. But how did that how did that path into forestry and eventually led you from southern Wisconsin and you wound up in in the northern portion of Wisconsin? Yeah, I was sitting in a forestry class at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and the professor said something about a county forest. I had never heard of county forest in my life, and I'm thinking, Vilas County Forest. What does that mean? And it, you know, it's a scenario or whatever he was describing. <laughs> And I, you know, I, I don't even, I it stuck with me. I don't even think I looked into it, but as I was getting close to graduation, I, I started looking around for internships and what it was and <laughs> County Forest. I saw internships for County Forest. So I said, well, <laughs> in my, by then my parents had bought some property up by Minocqua. So we were spending a lot of time in Northern okay. Wisconsin and just really, I mean, who doesn't love going to Northern Wisconsin, especially if you're from the Southern part of the state. Yeah. So I was like, well, shoot, County Forest, internship. Northern Wisconsin, I'll give it a shot. And it was everything I'd hoped it to be. And, and uh, just large forests, um, you know, continuous forest. It was just nice to be in the big woods, you know, the North Woods. I, you know, growing up, I always, it was a, we spent a lot of time deer hunting and rough grouse hunting in, in Northern Wisconsin. So now, now I get a job and I can live and work in Northern Wisconsin. It was, it was uh, great. Yeah, very cool. And how long have you been with Bayfield County now? 19 years already. Jeez, it's 19 just, years, wow. Yeah, I worked a little bit. I was an intern in Vilas County, uh, which is northern Wisconsin. Then I was uh, I worked for a year and a half in Burnett County, which is uh, northwest Wisconsin. And then I've been here ever since and love it up here. I mean, Lake Superior, Schwamigan Bay, public land. It's yeah, it's going to be hard to. I don't think I'm, plan, I'm not planning on leaving. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, you're preaching to the choir, as the listeners will know. Uh, growing up here in Duluth, it's you know a lot of similarities, and we're we're not really that far apart geographically, anyways. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a great place to be on a great lake for sure. So yeah, almost two decades, man. You've seen you've seen a couple of grouse covers turn over, haven't you? Coming, yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, geez, again, just it's been so great. I I've set up timber sales, watch them get cut. And, and and have hunted them, and then you know they're starting to age out, and then the yeah. next one, the next one. It's just been really, it's been awesome, and it's really modified my management and how I tim- set up timber sales as an avid grouse hunter, just in terms of retention patches and conifer retention and drumming logs. I mean, I, I think it just made me a better forester to kind of look at those things versus oh, I got so many acres I need to set up. I, I hunt this. I, 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 you know, what, what do the birds need? How do I help woodcock, grouse, and all the other species that come with it? But, you know, it's been really great to, you know, I've made my mark on the landscape and uh, on the county forest for quite a while. And, and it's been fun to sort of learn as I go and sort of modify tweaks and, and, and make a better product really. And to kind of maximize grouse density, but no one should come up and hunt these. These are sort of off limits, but anyways, <laughs> you know, I'm trying Honestly. to, you know, maximize uh you know what what these working lands can do and it's as a grouse hunter it gives me a unique opportunity yeah very cool we're gonna we're gonna circle back to some of that stuff i've I've got a couple topics i want to cover before we get too deep into that but i will say that uh it is a a normal thing for me to do and if i'm walking out of a a piece of county property over in that over your way and i maybe have a grouse or two in the bag i i like to send mike a text and usually say keep up the great work yeah yeah and i usually know right where he was he shot it i know the forest like the back you know the tree you can see the tree in the picture (laughs) no that's awesome i mean that's what those public lands are for and i think it's awesome that people are out there enjoying it like i am so no cool yeah well okay so we're going to table the grouse conversation for now because one thing i really wanted to bring you on 
to talk about was turkeys. I've been talking a little bit turkeys on the podcast over the last month or so. The season is over now, so we're kind of past the peak turkey hype. But as you being one of my key turkey mentors, we were messaging back and forth along with our, our two other friends, Garrett and Ted, a lot over the turkey season as we're all doing a little bit of turkey hunting. You're hunting in northern Wisconsin primarily. That You hunted entirely up there this year, didn't you? I did. Yep. yep. Okay. Basically, all of it was in Bayfield County, I believe. Yep. Yeah. So, in, in, as we mentioned earlier, you grew up hunting and, and chasing turkeys around in southern Wisconsin, more traditional turkey uh, habitat, I would I would venture to guess, and and I want you to comment on sort of that, and then coming up here, and you said something really interesting. This is what what got me thinking about it. After I just had my first successful hunt in like close to home, a lot closer to home than I had been hunting turkey in the previous few years. This idea that you know we didn't have them here it wasn't that long ago before, and. I, I didn't even know this, but you mentioned it on the BHA podcast that you were, I think, around for when they were actually releasing turkeys in, in Bayfield County. I'd love to just sort of get your thoughts on like hunting them then and then quickly transitioning into like hunting turkeys in the Northwoods and like whatever you know of the history of turkeys in northern Wisconsin. Sure. Yeah. I grew up hunting the traditional woodlot, farm field, edge, private land, yep. uh, classic turkey woods down there, you know, and, and some public land is mixed in there. But, you know, that was all I knew, you know, they roosted on the ridge tops and they come out to the field and, you know, it was just Southern Wisconsin turkey hunting. And, and yeah. it was just so interesting to come up here and, you know, it just looks nothing like Southern Wisconsin, which would be classic turkey woods. But yeah, 2000, I actually talked to the wildlife, uh, retired wildlife biologist yesterday, just to sort of get okay. my facts straight. And uh, it was 2004 when they released birds in Bayfield County in three different locations. And one of those locations was on the county forest. And it was, I think it was like 25 birds or so. So that, yeah, I was here when they released those birds. And I don't remember, he didn't remember either how long it was after that we actually had a season. But it was, I remember when I first started here, I'd call the wildlife biologist. Yeah, I see birds north of Highway 2, which is halfway north uh, in Bayfield County. Oh, I see birds within 100 yards of Lake Superior now. Yep. I mean, you could watch the march going north in real time, and it was just really interesting to basically show up, basically no turkeys, and then uh, within half a dozen years, basically turkeys everywhere in the county, and a season showed up shortly thereafter, and I've been here ever since, basically, and and to to hunt the woods uh, up here, it took some getting used to, and actually, my dad started coming up the last couple of years to hunt, and, you know, it was an eye opener. Like, okay, how do you scout and where do you go to, where do they roost? I mean, everything's just is a little bit different because it's, it's forested systems and not fields and, yeah. and whatnot. So yeah, I've, I've really had that, you know, and I've watched them, you know, and at work, I get to see where a lot of the birds are, are, you know, hanging out so I can kind of get a, a leg up on where to go scout and, and go hunt. Um, but yeah, you know, like red pine plantations, classic roost, you know, mature red pine plantations. Yep. That's probably where they're going to roost. And, hmm. You know, these sand roads, they love to strut up and down sand roads. And then the sand yep. roads and the sand country definitely tell a whole story about, okay, are they walking down these roads? And, you know, it's just in, in the, with endless public land, you can sort of get up in the morning and are they are they gobbling here? Nope, drive another quarter mile. You hear them gobbling there? Nope, drive another half mile. I mean, there's probably a half a million acres within 45 minutes of where I live. So, I mean, yep. hardly any turkey hunting pressure. So you can basically cover a ton of real estate. And that's a lot different in down south where you have 80 acres to hunt or 40 acres to hunt and the birds are there or they're not. 
this, I mean, I can blow a whole day like nothing turkey hunting. It's nothing better for me than to get up in the morning and just sort of spend all day cruising and, and looking for birds. And that's what I did for dang near over a month this spring. And, and, uh, yeah, so it's just with all the, the space and opportunity, the birds are basically equally spread out mostly across the landscape. So there's, there's a, a lot of opportunity, but it was, a, it was completely different than down South. And my dad's really enjoyed it. He's like, wow, we'll just go down the road and you go that way. And you know, we'll, you can just cover a lot of ground with all that public land to, to try and find a bird. Yeah, being a being a rough grouse and woodcock hunter here, kind of spoiled with public land, it, it's almost like the norm in your mind. So I could I could very easily imagine if you grew up hunting sort of the classic turkey country in at least in the you know the couple of states that we're talking about, primarily a lot more private land, less public land. Could see the the appeal of of being able to cover so much ground and hunt so much public land. Very very cool. Did when you were talking to the bird biologist. Did he have any, and in, in if, if we don't have the answers to any of this stuff, that's fine. I, I kind of like really want to get like a, almost like an expert on as far as like turkeys and northern expansion and that kind of thing. But when they were releasing birds, was there, do you have any idea what the thinking was? Like, were they maybe seeing birds at the time? Were there no birds or were they just saying like, hey, let's see if this works out? Or, I mean, there had to have been some historical perspective. When I was talking to the retired biologist, I he was uh, I said, "What was the impetus to re- re- uh, release birds up here? Was there some sort of insights?" He's like, oh, "A, we didn't want to do it, didn't think it would be successful." But then he started hearing reports of birds in Canada and birds oh. in northern Minnesota, and so he said he went to a conference, I think in the Duluth area, where they where folks from Canada and further north of Wisconsin were going, yep, birds are doing well here. And he was, they, I think there was a number of wildlife biologists going, geez, wow, okay, well, I guess we got to rethink what we think of as, as classic turkey cover. And even then, you know, when they made the decision, I think they were all pretty skeptical. Like, yeah, we'll see what that first winter does, right. you know, uh, for them to look for food and just how are they going to handle these winters. But I think it was the fact that birds had already moved further north in other parts of the country that got them thinking, well, okay, let's give it a shot. And so they kind of looked for areas that were more open on the county forest, thinking, well, they're, they're related to fields. You know, here's, you know, young, you know, brushy open cover. Let's, let's, let's try and release them there. And just basically exceeded their expectations. I mean, I just think they were like, there's no way they're going to make the first winter. They made the first, they made the second, they made, and here they are. And yeah. recruitment seems to be really high. And even with tough winters, they seem to be bouncing back. And I, It'd be interesting for you to find an expert because I, I think there's a lot of questions about winter survival. Where do they move? Are they all going to artificial food sources? Are they, yep. you know, what kind of migratory patterns versus southern Wisconsin or southern Minnesota where the, you know, the winters aren't really pushing birds around? But deer move in the winter and, you know, I'm sure turkeys right. are kind of doing the same. Yeah, where, where are they going and just what kind of reproductive success are they having up here? Because we don't have maybe as many raccoons or skunks or pot, you know, other things that are hitting nests in the southern part of the state. Sure. You know, a uh, lo- lot of unanswered questions. But, um, yeah, it's just really neat to see a success story where they've done really well. And, and it seems stable. It's not like, I mean, I'd say consistently the birds are pretty much always been there the last 15 years. Where I go look for birds, I can generally find them. Yeah, yeah, and I, I kind of know the answer to this, but... Uh, 
like along the lines of your comments about you know when they were thinking about oh let's maybe put them closer to fields and stuff you know you've been you've been in the big woods up there and i mean you're pretty much finding them all over the place oh right? uh, even me i catch myself going i don't know if i'm gonna go down this road there, there's a lot of like <laughs> continuous big forest yeah. and then I'll, I'll have a buddy like yeah i shot a bird down that road i'm like that there's turkeys down that road even me <laughs> who like has covered everything but you kind of yeah. get in your own world about where you had success where you yeah. have turkey hunted and it looks like red pine plantations with young jack pine clear cuts or red pine clear cuts nearby and sort of that mix of open yeah that's where the birds are well lo and behold they're kind of everywhere i just sort of keyed in on what i've identified as good turkey habitat so i'm even then i'm sort of constantly surprised you know the continuous bigger timber sure enough there's birds there too yeah i I know i recall one day specifically i was out hunting uh it was in uh it was in an area i was grouse hunting it was in the fall and i was hunting with uh jared elm who you know uh, works for the rough grouse society and we were we were i mean relatively deep in the cover and we were hunting heavy soil not sandy soil country which maybe we'll get into that a little bit later um with you on the podcast but you know not probably not the first thing you think of is like oh here's here's where the turkeys are going to be and we were i mean we were way back about as far into the cover as we could get and i think it was i don't remember if i had hartley on the ground or if i had rose at the time i think it was hartley and uh basically heard a commotion up ahead of us and sure enough here comes a turkey flying over my head i swear i could have dropped it with a load of seven and a half it (laughs) flew right over me but i did not have a full turkey tag that year so i didn't shoot but uh yeah and that's and and jared i remember we were talking because he's like he was like i mean that turkey's not eating corn back here there's nothing back here like we were we were that far into the cover and sure enough there's a turkey I remember there's a huge swamp in the center part of the, the county called the Bibbon Swamp. I remember seeing turkeys oh, yeah. like come out of the alder brush on one side. It's just <laughs> water and alder brush. They come out one side into the road, cross and go the other way. I'm like, where are they? What are these birds doing? Where are they? What are they eating? They have web feed in here. I mean, like, what is, is this habitat? Like, nobody would have been like, oh, classic turkey habitat. And, and we yeah. were like a mile from, you know, high ground. And, and I, it's just, amazing what they're seeing as habitat that they can survive in it's just crazy yeah it doesn't sound like it based on based on your your comments but like no noticeable decline or anything coming out of this winter and we like i think i don't know what your thoughts are over that way but i feel like it was a i mean it was a cold winter with plenty of snow maybe not what you would think would be great for turkeys but they did okay i think i think so too i was I was hearing some reports of like the bird numbers being down, but mm-hmm. I, I, again, I, I don't, I was out a lot. I was, uh, and I could, no, I don't think that's the case. I think it's stable. It seemed no different to yeah. me than it had been the last half a dozen years. So I, yep, I think everything is business as usual, which is great. The birds are there and, and I, I fully expect them to continue. I mean, we had a bad winter in 2013, 14, and there were reports of birds, you know, dead birds all over the place. And, but again, I think recruitment is really, high and they they bounce back pretty quick if they can handle a deep deep snow winter like that right they can handle anything because that was kind of off the charts for uh, winter severity i honestly i have no idea what they eat in the winter i think i've heard that they're budding in trees and stuff i mean do you have do you even know what they're eating in the i mean are they eating hazel catkins or i'm not sure to be honest what they're doing <laughs> but i you know i I think of that like on these cold, wet mornings. I'm thinking, man, those birds are up here, you know, roosting in a tree in northern Wisconsin or Minnesota, like just a wind howling and a blizzard. Imagine I'm like, jeez, I can't even imagine just how, you know, a deer tucks into the brush or those grouse Grouses are buried the in snow. the snow. Yeah. And I'm thinking, <laughs> those turkeys are sitting perched up in some <laughs> conifer, which might help a little bit. But I, 
Those are some tough birds. No kidding. Yeah, absolutely. If you can, if you can stay out all night in some of the some of the nights we have here, uh, in the depths of winter, yeah, that's a hardy bird without a doubt. What are your? Uh, we won't spend too much more time talking about this, but what are your? You kind of touched on it, but what are your favorite? Like, what's your go-to method for hunting big woods, north woods turkeys? What do you like to do? What do I like to do? I like to key in on uh, big pine. Uh, I think having okay. a, like a mature red pine plantation, or if it's um, aspen or um, hardwood or oak or something i think it seems to me they tend to favor big pine trees uh, mature pine trees so if there's like a stand of aspen with you know uh, scattered big pine mixed in um you know that's what i'm going to be focused in on but i mostly mature red pine plantations seem like that seems to hold a lot hold that's good roosting uh for for the birds it seems like birds roost in mature pine plantations and we have a lot of them so I, i tend to really key in on anchor around pine stands mature pine stands and then kind of branch out from there i mean it's always a good starting point i do i have found birds in spots where like where where did they roost you know i don't even see a roost tree here and i'll see them walking down a a sand road but i do you know i'm always looking for roost sites and for me that's that's big big towering pine and that seems to be where i hear most of those birds are in pine trees so i i think that's that's the start basically i go from there and then it's just um again these public lands have just we have a ton of roads so you can sort of you can get right. wherever you want. And so I think between just scouting, this, taking your time on the roads and a lot like the sand country is where I hunt a lot. I think you can they, they tell a heck of a story. The birds are on these roads and you just sort of as you're driving along, you can be like, oh, yep, there's strut marks here. Yep. OK, maybe. Yep. I can look around and and, uh, you know, maybe they're roosting over there. But they do bounce around the roost sites. I mean, I've tried to pattern birds and, you know, they, they seem just like anything else. They, they kind of bounce around their roost sites. So you can't always. But generally, you know, within half a mile or something they're they're going to be there but you know i think part of it's just you know i scouting time in the woods yeah there's generally more grouse there than people think there's generally more turkeys there you know they're not gobbling this morning but you know maybe not where i was at and so i think i've been humbled multiple times like geez i'm not they're not gobbling boy maybe there's nothing around and then i'll have a buddy text me who's on public land a mile away gobbling their heads off and it's like wow i should have been over there so i think you just got to be persistent and just you know just get in the woods and it can look like, well, is this turkey woods? And I just trust that. Just like when I told, you know, Nick years ago, where are the birds? They're in the woods. Just keep walking. They're there. Trust them. They're in the woods. And so I think it's, yep. you know, just sticking with it. You just sort of can have faith that a lot of it's pretty good habitat. And I've had enough experience finding birds in that habitat right. that they're there, whether they're, you know, goblin or not. Just, you know, be patient and stick with it. But yeah, yeah, no, no, no big secrets. Yeah. Mature pine and sand roads. Yeah, that's that's helpful. I mean, again, you see turkey tracks like that is a especially like like for me this year, like I was I was hunting. I, I didn't hunt Wisconsin. I only hunted Minnesota, but I was going to areas that I had never hunted before. And to be frank, didn't even know if there was turkeys there, because, again, this conversation of like, well, where are they? Like, how are they up this far and are they all over the place? And the ability to obviously see tracks. I mean, that's you know, it's basic hunting 101 but boy is that a big confidence booster when you can follow those roads and see the tracks and know that the birds kind of use the roads i mean that's that's helpful i think for yeah turkey hunting right i think like deer tracks like okay you see deer tracks like okay how do you hunt the track you know it's a good trail but i think when you find deer uh turkeys using and especially strutting strut Mm -hmm. zones and you know it's like i've i've made countless decisions to hunt an area just based on you know fairly recent strut marks it's like Generally, he's probably going to come through here sometime. I don't know which yeah. way or whatnot. I that those those sand roads or just roads in general. Turkeys really seem to use those corridors 
quite a bit up here. They're, they're, we don't have the fields, and they're picking, you know, grit and stuff along those town roads and sand roads, and we just have roads everywhere, so you can kind of cover the ground well too, and just, you know, keep an eye out for, you know, that that sign. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, you got your bird early, and then kind of, as you alluded to earlier, spent the rest of the season going out with other people and and helping them out. Obviously, you just you enjoy being out on the county forest, and yeah, it's a yeah. With the late spring we had this year, it was like any. Once it finally got nice, it was like any excuse to get out there and watch the woods wake up and maybe hear oh. a bird gobble. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, I took out I think five or six friends, and some of them had success, some didn't. But and I was out a lot on my own. Just man, yeah. something about yeah, watching that spring woods wake up. Whether you're hearing birds or whippoorwills or not, I just there's so much ground to cover up here, and just it's a great time to be to be out in the woods. So I it's it was. It's addictive, just like grouse. I'm addicted to grouse hunting. I've become more and more addicted to turkey hunting <laughs> or scouting. Like I said, I have just as much fun interacting with the bird without yeah. a weapon, just to get close, just to see him, just take some pictures, just to interact with them. I tend to call a lot less when I'm not hunting. I don't really want to educate them, and I can learn a lot yeah. by not having the gun. It takes a lot of the pressure off, so I end up becoming a smarter hunter. How can I ambush this bird? How how I don't want to educate them. I don't want to bump them. I, I want them to just sort of walk by me close, not even know I'm there. And so, it, yeah, it, it, it's a different way of getting at the birds, and it was, it's just as exciting as pulling the trigger. Or yeah, well, all your all your early morning texts really lit a fire under me, and you, know, you were out there for like a month before I even hunted. My season was right right at the end, but uh, it was definitely good good motivation to get out there. And uh, you had already had about I don't know. 10 20 toms in range but i finally got got it done so it was was you did and i am really excited for you i mean i remember seeing those text tracks what do i got hey i've seen the same hen the same hen is this the same hen that i saw last time and and then you know just the expression on your face when you you called in those birds when you sent that text with that photo photo of you it's just man i mean it gets you get hooked when you start interacting with those birds even if you don't kill them you just get them close and did it you did it on your you know you were doing the calling man i tell you that rush is 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 hard to beat and just interacting with game like that it's no i mean awesome work for you you stuck with it and heck of a hunt yeah it was cool i i will say I, i feel like i had kind of a almost like a storybook turkey season and like being on, you know, my, my hunt with Garrett didn't work out this year. So I was, I was on my own hunting new area, which, you know, turned out to be a great thing for me, but it's like every hurdle, you know, could have been the moment where I was, ah, screw this, you know, it's not, not going to work out. But to be fair, like I found tracks the first day and I saw a couple hands the first day. And then the next day I was out, I found that big strut zone and I was texting you guys like, are these strut marks? Like I didn't believe it. (laughs) And it was, it was a cool spot. And I just feel like every day I was out, for a total of five, I think like I got like another carrot, you know, like a, another, another piece of the puzzle came together. And then my buddy and I had a, had a cool encounter. Uh, and then the next day I was out, I, I ended up getting a bird, but yeah, it was, it was super cool. And that classic Turkey hunting where, you know, nothing's going on. And then all of a sudden, boom, yeah. <laughs> there yeah. it is. It, like, yeah. it, oh, that is, there, that is Turkey hunting right there. Just like nothing, nothing. Holy cow. Get down, get ready. Here it comes. Mm-hmm. And it, it it's yeah it's addictive and I, i'm sure you're going to be doing it again next year with a different oh, mindset yeah. like there's birds here i've seen yes. birds here i got confidence we can yep. do this and it just builds and it's just it's a neat to kind of watch you know get work through that progression and, and taking my friends out and coworkers, 
you know, I, I have so much experience turkey hunting, and, and I, I enjoy doing it by myself, but it's fun to share it. But just, like, sort of getting people, it can be intimidating. Like, okay, how do I start? They're not saying anything. Anyways, when you, when you have some of that success, it's, it, it really feeds on itself. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. I think, I think maybe the calling aspect of turkey hunting makes it seem like there's it's almost unattainable if like if you don't really know what you're doing but like that was another thing this year i proved myself like with the bare minimum amount of calling i was able to get it done and i had birds responding and stuff so that was a big deal but i think when you're new or from the outside looking in maybe you know this is how i felt i think was just like oh my gosh like you gotta be able to call these birds in you know and and you you can get I think you can get in contact with the right bird where it's just like you know he's coming in whereas other birds take more coaxing that I probably don't have the experience to get through but just knowing that you can do it and seeing it happen was again a huge huge leap forward I would say heck yeah yeah I want to I want to keep going on this this confidence thing in that this is something that I I think it's a it's a perk of your job in that you spend a lot of time in the woods and when it comes to exploring, let's say we're talking rough grouse cover now, um, you know, when it comes to f- exploring and finding new covers, you have this benefit or bonus where you're going into covers for work and you're flushing birds via your work. And again, the simple fact, the simple act of flushing a bird, it's just like, it kind of like flips a switch in your mind about like, okay, I've got confidence. Even if you weren't expecting to find a bird there, you see it happen. And I, I mean, talk about like how that sort of plays into your mindset. You're sort of willing to, to go in anywhere because you've, you've maybe seen a bird there, you know, when you were checking timber during the summer or something. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I, you, you, I flush birds in all the habitat and granted, right. we all know there's certain aspects of habitat where birds will congregate and, and spend time certain times of the year. But just like the, the, the amount of opportunity I've had to interact with birds that, a, get you fired up, there's birds here, and maybe not even classic cover, but that means if I'm in cover or I'm passing through cover where I feel like some people are like, hey, this is too old or this is just a different species, I'll be like, I can just like, well, I've, I've moved birds plenty of times at work in cover like this, so you know, I'll keep walking, and I know there's another stand behind that might be more age-appropriate for maybe having a higher density of birds, but just as I'm setting up mature... Uh, aspen that's 50 60 years old with balsam mixed in i mean i swear sometimes there's as many birds in that as there is in the classic aspen and so i I just look at like just there's good in like uh northern hardwood stands or oak stands if you got stem density and you got some conifer mixed in or you got some uh uh, wetland areas mixed in it just feels like i can you know basically get in the birds everywhere i go so when i'm hunting i just feel like it's all birdie and you know it ebbs and flows and you kind of got to be realistic about you know how birdie and how close the dogs are going to get if it's a really open northern hardwood stand certain times of the year you can get a lot of action in that and if you didn't spend a lot of time sort of working in that or or like i do at work i'd be like this is a dead zone this is going to be a waste of time but no it gives me a lot of confidence to just sort of i know the birds are here i i i got the kind of experience no one else has i've i spend basically every day of the week out here kind of understanding through timber sales and, and doing reconnaissance where that were, were grouse and woodcock are hanging out. So I, I can definitely be, I see a lot as maybe birdie habitat that other people would be like, well, you know, I don't know about that. And I just, yeah. you know, personally, I've moved a lot of birds here. I've got 20 years experience sort of moving birds in, in this kind of cover. And 
And, uh, and so I'll spend time hunting in that um, where most people maybe wouldn't, but just sort of on my way to the next cover definitely keeps yeah. you keeps you kind of uh, focused and, you know, expecting like this isn't necessarily a waste of time. So, yeah, no, it's a real benefit. I mean, you'd think I'd shoot a big buck every year too because, you know, I get to you know, <laughs> do that, but I don't. And, uh, but I, I do, uh, I get to see uh, the deer, the turkeys and the, and the sign. It's just definitely something I get to spend a lot of time seeing at work that most people, you know, don't. They show up and they have expectations. Like I got to maximize my short window and yeah, and uh, you know, and again, I live up here, so I can hunt. Another, it's a Monday; I can go hunting Tuesday, Wednesday, so it, I can have a lot more patience and spending a lot of time in different parts of you know the forest and age clash. But I, I think the bottom line is there's birds kind of throughout all those timber types, yep. and um, at certain times of the year they kind of ebb and flow. But definitely, I, I can I feel like there's a lot more birds out there than people realize in cover. They're not spending any time in hunting. Yeah. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and Fred of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. So on that note, when you're going to go hunt somewhere, let's say you're going to hunt somewhere new, are you, do you think about, what are the top things that you are thinking about? Are you looking for a, for an age appropriate Aspen stand, want that to be a component or are you thinking more like exploration? You want to check this out or that out? Um, what goes through your mind as far as like hunting a new spot? Uh, yeah, I'd say I'm always anchoring it on age appropriate Aspen, um, yeah. which is easy to do because there's so much of yep. it, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, that's exactly right. I think, you know, age appropriate Aspen, but that's step one. Step two is there's plenty of age appropriate Aspen where it's just pure Aspen with not much diversity. And that, you know, yep. if I could go, you know, if that's on one side of the road versus maybe sort of a, a mixed Aspen stand with conifer and maybe some oak seed trees that have been left you know, I'm going to go there instead. You know, there's just more value added from the diversity. The birds like the diversity. They need stem density, but I think that interface of different things, conifer mixed in, uh, uh, riparian areas mixed in. So I'm really looking at complexity within a smaller area, mm. um, not like a 150-acre as- pure aspen clear cut. And, you know, some soils and some some timber sales are just going to be that way. There, there's just not a lot of conifer in there. And certain times of the year, the birds will be there but maybe I'll hunt more of the edges of that stuff. But yeah, I'm looking always for complexity, a, a dirty aspen stand, you know, harvest that in terms of just having different species mixed in, not, not a, a, you know, a poorly done logging job, but just, you know, I, I'd like aspen with age appropriate. I'd like conifer components, but not too much conifer. I mean, too much conifer is hard to hunt those, you know, you get, you yep. get in there and there's birds there and it's like, well, okay, am I better off spending my time trying to like not never see a bird 
So, you know, I like just a little bit of conifer. Um, In certain times of the year, you know, the birds are going to spend more time in thicker conifer, and you just got to be smart about that more late-season hunting and where they want to be. But age-appropriate, and I like wetland edges. I like natural openings. Yeah. And oaks, scatter residual oak. I mean, Nick, you can attest to this. I mean, you're kind of like looking at those as, you know, the acorn. (laughs) I mean, I think, especially our management, we're we're leaving more scattered retention out in these these, – aspen cuts and really they could be oak harvest that we're doing more of an even aged uh clear-cut type uh prescription to regenerate the oak and the maple and the aspen and and those scattered oak are providing acorns in certain times of the year i mean that's that's there's a lot of things going to those acorns and so i think it's yep you know those are all the good things i'm looking at oaks over aspen as our mutual friend ted likes to say i I like that i like that saying yeah that is that's a it's a beautiful sight when you've got a like a you know, you've got an aspen cut that is is in the age where it needs to be, and you can see some big mature oak trees scattered about. And I mean, I've I've gotten to the point where I've talked about this a lot, where you know the area that I grew up hunting didn't have a lot of oak trees, so it's kind of new to me. But I mean, if I see oak trees, I will make a point of walking under every single one of those. And you know, I might walk under a hundred and flush a grouse under one of them but it sure feels good when you intentionally did that and you flush a grouse you know yeah well you're you're doing it from experience and then you're in the cover anyway so to get from one yes. to the next isn't like well geez you know I'm, I'm wasting you know it's all good cover and it's just like you know uh, those are objectives you know we talk about objectives in grouse hunting and what it is you're in there for but i mean i again i, I don't much want to get into this in terms of hunting well i guess i'll just like I've switched breeds on dogs and, and with the different breed, the setter, I, I, I've hunted totally different in these covers and the way I pick covers and how I move through them has really changed. So that, that means the stand can, the, the area I'm hunting can be a lot smaller than it used to. I used to like, you know, lean forward and practically run down the trail and maximize my time in the woods. And, yeah. and I needed a lot more cover to spend, you know, a few hours, but now with, with my setter, I, I spend, I move a lot less fast and spend a lot more time letting the dog find the grouse which makes a lot more sense you know as i say it out loud i should have been doing that a long time ago but as my young exuberance like lean forward cover the ground birds are going to be in there let's get after it and i think i was just probably moving too fast and not you know covering the actual cover that i i thought i was covering so you know now i'm i'm hunting smaller and smaller areas and just taking more and more time and i think what i'm finding is there's a lot of birds i walk by everybody walks by because the bird, the dogs just don't have as you know, we're not giving them much time as much time as maybe we should to kind of hunt the cover that you're in versus just sort of move through it quickly. Yeah, and I know you've had that conversation with Kyle Warren, former guest of the show, um, and I wanted to bring him up at this point, anyways, because really in me asking you like how you're sort of choosing and setting up your hunts, it, it's kind of something that Kyle put in my head in the last time I interviewed him, which was I don't know a few months ago. It, we were talking, and you know I was sort of talking about like what I looked at for in covers and I knew this about Kyle and he kind of reiterated it on that interview that, you know, his really at the top of the chart for him is as many bird contacts as, as humanly possible as he can get for his dogs, no matter where they are. And a lot of times that is in that, that trashy, terrible cover. You know, I've, I've talked about, talked to you about hunting with him. He mentioned it on the show. And I think sometimes as much as I think I'm trying to maximize bird contacts, I do think that sometimes I'm choosing like an aesthetic of a car. I'm choosing to hunt covers that I want to be in and want to walk through and, and maybe giving up some bird contacts here and there. Now I still think I have a good chance of finding birds, but that's an interesting way to think about, you know, how you're choosing your covers. I, I think. 
Uh, tell you, yeah, I got a, so I got a paint river here. I, I currently, I've had Weimaraners and, uh, yep. I shot a lot of birds over Weimaraners and, uh, but I, you know, generalist versus specialist. And, uh, so I, who's doing the most hunting with, you know, their dogs. Well, Jesus seemed like Kyle really <laughs> spends a lot of time after, but I couldn't believe it. when I went hunting with him to, before I got a dog from him, I, I swear we'd, you know, he's got seven or eight dogs. He's got to run a day. So it's eight, seven, eight hours a day. The guy's the real deal. I was like, okay, uh, let's see how this, this will be interesting, how it goes. I mean, we would spend 45 minutes dang near within sight of the truck. And I'd be like, well, the good cover <laughs> is over there yet further. We didn't even get into the good cover. And he's like spinning circles. And I can see basically the truck for 45 minutes. And it's like, yeah, yep, eight to 10 grouse an hour we moved here. And I'm thinking, we're not even in the good cover. And so it's like, I learned a lot. I'm like, geez, this guy is like basically not moving and covers a very small area and, and cover Thoroughly. that I wouldn't yeah. really spend time in. And so I learned a lot like, well, I guess just like you said, you know, aesthetically we're kind of keyed in and this is classic yeah. grouse cover. And it is. And those birds are there too. But there's a lot more birds in cover that I just was like, this is walkthrough cover. This is like drive-by cover. And Kyle's like, I don't have time to do that. I got to run dogs every all day, every day. Right. And, you know, he can take a cover that you and I might spend two hours saying, yeah, we hunted it. And he'll drop six dogs in and just piecemeal the whole thing yeah. and, uh, you know, cover all of it really well. So, yeah, for me, it's really changed how I've hunted. And I've slowed way up and just spent a lot of time in one cover. And, frankly, the bird numbers are, you know, the setter hunts a little differently than the YM anyways sure. in terms of, you know, bird contacts and uh, whatnot. But I, I, I need a lot less cover to spend a lot as, as much or more time. And I don't mind. As I'm getting older, I'd like to see. Ah, I'm going to keep busting brush forever, but uh, it's been a good change. I've really enjoyed having a kind of that thorough working, you know, all around me, take our time. But Kyle's really, I w- you know, like I said, I just like, gosh, we, we're not moving. We're barely moving, Kyle. And then he'll like <laughs> run up 50 yards real quick and then stop again and let the dog work. And it's like just a totally different style of hunting that I've ever had. And it's just like you learn a lot. I mean, I think having an open yeah. mind about different techniques, how people read the cover, and what you w- want to do and what you're willing to do. And even you, Nick, you know, as your, your transition from a partridge hunter to a grouse hunter, I mean, you're, <laughs> you're coming into the cover that I've hunted a lot and you're coming in with a new set of eyes and, and what you're yep. keying in. And I'm listening to what you're listening, you're finding, cause I can learn, you know, your set of eyes and your analytical way of looking at it. You know, I think yeah. we all kind of get in a rut about, you know, what the habitat mm-hmm. is and where I find birds. And I think, you know, keeping an open mind of what habitat is and where the birds are moving through and, and just, you know, being open-minded to the habitat because again I, bottom line is there's just generally more birds out there than i realized i just sort of walked by a lot of them yeah absolutely yeah no i th- that's that's great and that's i mean it's one of my favorite parts of uh, i think of this podcast and really any of the conversations that i would have or a listener would have with their friends you know these are the things you sit around and talk about it's like you do it one way and and you know i've got a you know like a little like a similar to you i think you know like a little bit of wanderlust like i like to explore and and see the i mean there's so much country to see and explore sometimes i'm planning my hunts and like you know i want to make this big huge loop and and maybe i'm i'm leaning forward you know like like you like you mentioned and and covering ground and pushing my dog past birds and i might be okay with that because i wanted to see that see that country but when it comes when we come back to think about grouse hunting and and bird contacts and like what are those other factors and variables like you said keep an open mind and and the more you understand the better you're able to set up your own hunts and sort of tailor them to what you want to accomplish right yeah absolutely and i mean i do kyle moves too 
I, I don't want to see my truck for 45 minutes. I don't need to go drop another dog either. And like you right. said, I like the big woods. I like covering yep. ground. So I've kind of got that hybrid. Knowing if I'm moving quick, I'm probably moving quicker than I should. But I, yep. I'd, like, you know, I'd like to go see that cedar swamp. I'd like to kind of go on that ridge. I'd like to take that trail back. So, you know, you kind of know what you're giving up by moving that fast. But, you, you know, I kind of like to, yeah, see what's over the next hill or, you know, and, you know, scout new covers too, you know, if you're always, uh, it's, you know, Kyle's kind of got to crank out, you know, bird contacts and, but, right. you know, there's something to see there. I learned a lot and, you know, I'm kind of got a new hybrid approach. Yeah. I love it. Love it. What's, I want to talk sandy soil, clay soil. This is a topic that I have broached before on the, on the podcast and, um, you and I have talked about it a lot. It was, it was one of the most eye-opening things for me when I started hunting in Wisconsin, because as I've mentioned many times before, I, I grew up hunting a, a relatively small portion of Minnesota that was basically all heavy clay soil. And I did not have a lot of experience on the sand. Now the sand is not unique to Wisconsin. There are, there are sand country in Minnesota, there's sand country in Michigan. Um, really it was kind of like the area that I was hunting, the arrowhead of Minnesota, if you will, that's pretty much clay soil. And that's kind of more unique, I would say, than, than the sand, sandy soil, clay soil. But talk about like, I guess from your, from your perspective as a forester, like the diversity within Bayfield County and, and this portion of Wisconsin that we're talking about, like the changing of soil types. I mean, you drive five miles on us highway two and it's like sand and then it's clay and then it's sand and then it's clay. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy how all that works. Yeah, Bayfield County and the timber that reflected uh, based on yes. the soil differences. I mean, I yeah, Bayfield County's got clay uh, up by Lake Superior, which extends, you know, half a dozen miles in from the shore at least. Mm-hmm. And so the aspen cover type in the clay is nothing like the aspen that is in sand country. I mean, we have, you know, alder brush mixed in. We got, uh, you know, a lot more balsam fir mixed in. And just the, the forbs are just totally different. The ground cover can be completely different. Yeah, it's just, it's so night and day. You get under the, the, the scrub oak aspen where it's just like basically yeah. no understory, really wide open, bracken fern. You know, holding cover can be kind of a challenge because it, it can be like good stem density, but like no shrub layer in the understory. Yep. And then, then you go, you know, into the, you know, quarter mile down the road and it's hazel brushes as thick as can be. And so, like, oh, you know, you look at uh, Onyx Hunt, and you're like, oh, Aspen, classic Aspen. You get in there, and there's just, like, in Bayfield County, it could be, you know, chock full of uh, ball or uh, balsam fir. It could be so thick a hazel brush, or it could be wide open. And all have the exact same stem density of Aspen. So it's just uh, the soil types. And, and, you know, I used to feel like if you want to find the, uh, the grouse, you got to go to the clay. You know, the clay's got more diversity. It's got more of that conifer component. And, as, again, you know, kind of... That's where I went. That was my assumption. That's what people yep. told me. And then I, I said, well, let's go. See. I'm at work. I'm, I'm flushing birds in scrub oak. I'm flushing birds in <laughs> sandy ground. I'm, I mean, there's woodcock. I swear there's more woodcock in a red pine plantation than anybody ever realizes because that's right. where I seem to find most of them. So I think based on my work experience and then just sort of my, I'd get my hunting hat on and be like, go to the clay. And I'm thinking like, well, I hunt the clay a lot, and I, I move birds there, but, you know, there's a lot of the county forest that I'm, I'm not spending much time in. But at work, I seem to be, I'm going to go try the scrub oak. I'm going to go try that sand. And I started having good success. And, you know, my friends would be like, you know, that liver on you, like, what are you hunting the sand aspen for? You know, that's that. there's no birds in that. And I'm thinking, <laughs> well, my, my work tells me there's plenty of birds there. So I've really, 
I've doubled the basic huntable area that, right. uh, for rough grouse yeah. hunting, which is sort of, you know, kind of like a, a, a duh, idiot. You know, there's birds everywhere. You know that. But even me, I was a little stubborn to kind of move into the sand aspen and spend some time there. Because some of that can be, certain times of the year, those birds can be really hard to hunt because there isn't much ground cover in certain stands. Yeah. And the birds are in there, but they run way ahead of you, and you're just not getting good shots. Or, you're, you know, there's a lot of pine plantations where there's plenty of grouse and jack pine and red pine, but... You know, you can't see them, so you don't spend much time in there hunting. So you really yeah. got to kind of figure out which sand aspen. But I, that scrub oak component, I mean, an aspen mix, it can be really, you be a high density of birds. So, I, you know, you just, but super diverse. I mean, you can't just say, go and find the aspen. All the aspen yeah. is a little different on Bayfield County based on the soils, which I think is really exciting. There's just a lot of diversity and, it, you know, diversity is good. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I would say that you know I was I was that guy that basically you know I start hunting this this new area and I pull up to a spot because I I figured out there was aspen there looking at a map or something, and I'm standing there looking at an aspen tree, but I'm like something doesn't look right. This doesn't look like what I was expecting to find, right? And it wasn't until <laughs> I mean I think it was probably you that that touched on it initially or or i picked up on it somewhere but just once you once i started paying attention to the soil types then that put everything into context to me for me and i, I was like okay so heavy soil is what i what i'm familiar with that's the that's the cover type that i have all this history and confidence with i had to i was starting from scratch basically in the sand country and then there's that there's a kind of that mixed country where you've got hardwood and you might have some potholes and some swales and stuff but you don't necessarily have a bunch of swamps um yep. riparian corridors but that was it was kind of a i would say it was like a level up moment for me in in grouse hunting when i started paying attention to soil type and then how that influences the cover type on the ground like you said there's birds in both but they use it a little bit differently and there's there's a lot of factors going on that you wouldn't necessarily see that are actually affecting like your hunting experience and what the birds are doing on yeah. in, in that cover. And I think the general consensus, I tend to see more hunt, grouse hunters, I would say, in the clay country yep. than I see in some of that scrubbier aspen. And I mean, I hope no one's listening to this podcast. But I mean, I just think <laughs> when you, there's a lot of untapped ground because, you know, I think just, I don't know. I mean, maybe, I don't know. I don't know you think about it, but it seems like, you know, the clay... And some of the obvious diversity that's there is just sort of, this is birdie, you know, it looks birdie, it's got all these things, and that dry aspen, I don't know, that seems more sterile, and it's just um, yep. maybe not going to be as productive, but there's birds pretty much all over the place. Yeah, I, I'm I'm definitely fighting a long history on, on the heavy soil type, clay soil stuff, and, and lots of bird contacts over the years in that stuff, so like... The sand country is at a is at a disadvantage in that in my mind, you know, like it's it would take a lot for me to get there, but slowly but surely I'm getting there because you know I spend enough time over at my cabin and I'm driving around and spending time on some of these high sandy barren areas where I know there's you know again you can go find age appropriate aspen as far as the eye can see it's all over the place and one of the things that that got me going on it too was turkey hunting I focused on the sand country for some of those reasons we talked about um, when I was hunting over there a couple of years ago just so you could see tracks and stuff and wouldn't you know it I'm hearing grouse drumming like crazy oh, in that in that, that sand country <laughs> that that was I think a big turning point for me about 15 years ago it's like I would turkey hunting in the in the sand I'm like there are Cross drumming all over the place down here. <laughs> yep. Like this is crazy. I got to like remember this and that hazelbrush <laughs> component and some of those. Yep. You know, we have a lot of like kind of poorly stocked, matured pine areas, and it's just 100 percent hazelbrush. And like 
frankly, a grouse factory, hard to hunt them, but like just the drumming in the spring is a good time to be out because you can do a lot of scouting. There's, yep, yep, verification. There's birds here. They're drumming. Yeah, yeah. On the forestry side of things, this is something that you mentioned it earlier before we kind of segued into turkeys, and I wanted to come back to it. This draws on a lot of conversations that we've had over the years. And, you know, when you're setting up timber sales, it isn't, I'd be curious, you can fill me in on like how you, how certain things are ranked as far as like, you know, marketable product, revenue of the sale, but then you're thinking about conifer clumps and drumming logs. And I mean, wildlife are a component to sustainable forestry. Wildlife management fits into that. So how do you think about that? And then what controls and like influences do you have in setting up those timber sales to, to create that balance between a successful timber sale and sustainable wildlife populations? Yeah, good question. I would say that is definitely an ongoing conversation, even within our department and the DNR. I think there's, there's just, I think we're managing timber, uh, which creates, and we have a large land base. And so we have diversity in age classes. And of course we, we, there's wildlife that are on the forest as part of this diversity, but okay, great. You know, foresters are setting up the wood. These are the species that move into it after the timber sale. And, you know, you have young age class, middle age class, older timber, set aside areas. Um, and so we have the full suite. Okay, great. Foresters set up the wood. Wildlife, sa- you know, wildlife staff is happy. But as I'm getting more experienced, I'm, okay, I have, we're going to set up a thousand acres of aspen on the county forest every year. And that's going to be probably wrapped up in 15 or 20 different aspen timber sales. So, you know, 100 acres, 80 acres a piece, or let's say. Okay, within that, what is it, you know, that we need to do or think about to 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 value add tweaks to say, okay, it's going to be young forest, but what are the things that we could do more to maybe make it a better quality timber sale for for yeah. wildlife? And so the DNR, I've been working with the DNR on some of these best management practices for young forest and just, you know, what, you know, what what are ways to provide you know, patch sizes that are, you know, appropriate size drumming logs. I mean, frankly, I read The Passion for Grouse and read a chapter in there from a retired professor down at uh, University of Minnesota. About, yeah, exactly. He had a yeah. sentence in there, a paragraph in there about how, you know, these whole tree harvesting operations where they utilize basically the whole tree is uh, doesn't allow much for coarse woody debris. Uh, there could be a potential deficit of drumming logs. And, you know, we have a lot of high va- volume and uh, very small utilization on some of our younger aspen sales. And, and they look pretty clean when they're done. And I'm thinking, you know, we could get good stem density, but geez, maybe we're missing drumming log opportunities. And, and so he made a comment about, like, maybe not having occupancy of a, of a male grouse in there because you know the stem density is great but you're you're missing a place for that bird to to set up shop and so i i reached out to him and uh said hey you know i this is something i'm concerned about we may be setting up sales that are missing this component because our 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 our, you know it's maybe a 45 year old aspen stand and the average diameter that those aspen trees are eight inches and and we you know we could mark some trees to leave but they're aspen and and you know we don't maybe have a lot of diversity in the stand to you know, currently laying on the ground, what can we do to make sure we're not, you know, we're not lacking drumming logs. And so our department developed with the wildlife staff and Rocky developed a drumming log policy. And we've been implementing that, you know, so many trees per acre and I'm marking Mm -hmm. a tree at 
five feet and usually an oak and usually 14 inches in diameter or greater in the logger. We're having the logger you know, cut that tree at five feet up and lay that tree in the ground as sort of a guard object that's sort of mimicking yeah. the tip, yep. tip up. And this is all through their guidance. And this is something that I help advocate for and say, hey, we, need, we can do better. We, I, I, yeah, my job is to set up a timber sale, but what are some of the other things I can do to add more benefit? And so we've implemented this drumming log policy and again, I don't know if birds are necessarily going to use it or not, but that's a little thing we can do along the way to just maybe ensure, even if it's not for grouse, it could be salamanders. I mean, some of these stands just generally lack coarse weighted debris. And so it's okay to leave some of these trees on the ground indefinitely. And then, you know, and so we have some retention. Part of our aspen clear cutting is we want to res- retain three to 5% of the original stand as a remnant of the original stand. And so that's mm. part of our certification process. So you can do that. So that would be the trees left standing? Yes, trees left okay. standing within that harvest unit. And that could be like leave all balsam fir, and there might be 15 trees out there. Yeah. Or there's a, a, a riparian management zone that we're not going to set up because, you know, to protect water quality. And so I can get credit for that. You know, there could be a little finger of RMZ that runs into the sale. Or that may not happen, and then we just say, okay, well, how are we going to find these? We have retention guidelines that we need to hit. And so lately, I've been moving towards, instead of scattered trees, red maple and even oak, you know, I think what we've been moving towards is, where I've been moving towards is patches, you know, an acre retention, three-quarters of an acre retention. And I think even when you have an 80 or 100 acre clear cut, and if I can do one acre retention patches every 100 yards, and then even do that retention patch isolate where maybe the conifer component is higher within parts of that stand and actually keep that as the retention so then those birds can move into that within an aspen clear cut, move into that retention patch that actually has balsam in it. It might be good roosting cover in the winter. It could be winter feeding cover in the mature aspen. And I think you can break up these large units with these strategic retention patches that I'm hoping will provide lots of value to a lot of species uh, versus just one tree here, one tree there, one tree there. So I I think it's just my curiosity to be like, okay, we're setting up the wood. You know, what are we doing for wood turtles? What are we doing for the Connecticut warbler? What do we, I mean, we we can provide, you know, uh, value added. And if it's, it's tweaks here and there, let's do it. And so I think my passion for grouse hunting has started looking at, okay, home ranges for grouse. What, what does a grouse need for within one flight of the drumming log? Yeah. Winter cover, you know, f- winter feeding cover, and, you know, how do I help maximize the needs? So I think with our riparian management zones that sort of go into these timber sales, they provide some of those opportunities and retention patches. And so I, I think just elevating, at least for me, is just how can I be the best forester possible and factor in all these other things that on my watch, as I set them up, I want to make sure we're providing as good a habitat for all species, game and non-game. Um, and that's just, I think, you know, I think all foresters in general want to do that. I just been really sort of outspoken on like, what are we doing? Is it working? And how can we kind of keep doing better? Yeah, that's super cool. How, how did the edges of a timber sale get defined? Cause I, mostly what I see when I'm out on public lands hunting the edge of a clear cut or something, it's not straight lines. It's not a big square. And, and I think, you know, there's some thought process there as far as like, uh, a straight line wouldn't necessarily be a good thing if you create these this weaving edge. Um, you can create more edge cover and more diversity in that edge. But I'm just curious, like, how does the edge get defined? Is it based on the trees that you're trying to cut? Is it, are you purposefully, like, drawing a line? Like, how does that work? Yeah, great question. We're, 
you know, it's funny. People will drive through the forest and they'll be like, oh, that's a cut. You know, why there and not over there? Or yeah. could you go cut somewhere else? Because that's my backyard and we're always in somebody's backyard. So don't worry, we're going to be cutting in their backyard someday too. <laughs> it's just a matter of time. But like people just drive through the forest and again, they're just seeing the woods and they're seeing this sale or not a sale. And for me, I, I'm looking at uh, GIS data. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the computer and saying, you know, th- the forest has been mapped. Everything's broken into what we call stands. So this could be a red pine plantation. This could be a 40-year-old aspen stand that's 80 acres right next to uh, a wetland drainage. And this could be an oak stand that's 120 acres and that's been thinned once. So the forest is just broken up into polygons. So when I'm at work and uh, we have to determine how many acres that we're going to cut every year, everything's on a rotation. We, you know, We're going to thin oak at 70 years and we're going to thin northern hardwood every 15 years and so you know based on all these we're going to clear cut red uh, aspen at 45 to 55 years old and so every year we can just generate this is our acreage this is our species composition this is our allowable harvest and so then within that i could say here's an aspen stand that's 120 acres and usually it's, you know, maybe a younger aspen stand right next door, or it's an oak stand, or it's a drainage. So the stands sort of, they've all been mapped and drawn out based on historic management through time has generated this patchwork of different age classes and different species that were perpetuating oak or perpetuating northern hardwood, perpetuating aspen through a clear cut. So, you know, all these different species have a different, a respective uh, civicultural practice to ensure you know, we want to maintain oak on the landscape. We want to maintain northern hardwood, which is sugar maple, basswood, yellow birch. We want to maintain our red pine acreage and jack pine. And so we're doing all, you know, as a forester, that's my job is to ensure like the, the planning process of continual uh, management of these species. And so as part of doing that is, you know, the appropriate harvest technique. So a lot of the sale boundaries lay themselves out. It's not like an arbitrary, hey, I'm going to just do this because usually it's up against some other timber type or age class. Gotcha. And I'd say the more complex part of the job now is just harvesting practices in 1970 or 75, where we maybe were more aggressive and just going down that drainage and up the other side and down that drainage and up the other side. Now, you know, BMP's best management practices for water quality and protecting these, some of these more sensitive stream areas or, or not even necessarily active streams, just more head cuts or drainage dry washes, we call them. Just to do more, just to keep equipment out of that, I'm doing a lot more boundary work on adding those into the timber sale that weren't there in 1970 when, frankly, we just sort of said cut from one side to the other. So the complexity of the sales in terms of setup time and even just complexity for wildlife benefit of having more diversity, um, the sales of, you know, there are a lot more going on now than back in the day. And and that's a good thing. You know, I think they're all things we want to achieve. So, you know, I'm going out there and I'll do a walkthrough, you know, I'll, I'll have my, my mapping and I'll say, okay, this is the acres I need to go and I'll go walk it and kind of determine, okay, yep, I got to put an RMZ riparian management zone here, an RMZ over there, and I will reach out and grab some of that over there. And so, and I know how many acres I need to set up in a certain area, and then I can select all the sales stands that I need to set up for that year. Some aren't ready, some aren't quite you know, for whatever reason, we're not going to set it up this year. So, you know, we can summarize all that at the beginning of the year and uh, kind of go out and say, hey, Mike, you're going to set up timber sales in this area and I'll have this many acres of oak or northern hardwood and aspen. And and I, and I the nice thing about being in longevity on a forest is you know it really well. So, I mean, it's super efficient. I've seen these acres. I kind of know the general area so I can hit the ground running. 
so that that's kind of a nutshell how a sale gets set up and why the boundaries look the way they look yeah that's super cool it's probably been said before but uh forester might be the rough grouse's best friend i don't think you would take all the credit mike but you're definitely one of them right <laughs> well yeah i think where the rubber hits the road is you know outside of a natural blowdown event i think in terms yep. of uh you know setting up the timber sale to create that habitat and like i said and then how do i make it is is, is you know, the best quality habitat is kind of the next step, which is really as, as a career for me, as I'm getting further down my career chain, I path, I think it's just been really, yeah, I just sort of woken up to like, okay, we need to, what are these things that we can do a little bit better? And so it's been fun to kind of interact with the wildlife staff and kind of bring them in the conversation. And cause they're happy to be like, great, you're excited. We're excited. How do we work yeah. on, on this stuff together? And I, you know, we're doing a lot of cool things on our on our forest, um, breeding bird surveys and sharp tail research, and all these things that are focusing on wildlife. Because I think, as a large public landowner, it's our job to bring value to the public in ways, frankly, I didn't even know existed. And you know, by doing these investments, we can tell that a good story about what it is we're doing and why, and the benefits it's providing. So one other thing on forestry, specifically aspen cuts, and and I think we mentioned it earlier, but like. Regenerating aspen stands, um, not all aspen stands regenerate equally. You know, they're not all the same. A 10-year-old cut in one spot doesn't look the same as a 10-year-old cut in another spot. And like the extent of my knowledge, I know that could vary on soil type. What other factors are at play? What causes one aspen stand to generate with a good level of stem density? And maybe describe to me what that is versus another one that is patchy grassy weedy uh, what's yep. happening there yep no great question they do not i'm learning as we go too in terms <laughs> of jesus isn't coming back quite as well as i thought uh i'd say a couple things in the age of the the current stand you're cutting if it's uh over mature and starting to die back you know that clone we're, it's just a clone so when we cut the, the trees the root system is still alive and then and they can sense that the overstory has been cut and so for survival, they send out suckers. And so they're like, okay, survival mode, and they like full sunlight to successfully regenerate. So you remove all the overstory, the trees react with suckers, and a good regeneration might be five to 8,000 stems per acre. I mean, super dense. And some, some areas, are the, the aspen is just really old, and an old clone isn't going to regenerate nearly as vigorously as a 40-year-old clone of aspen and then the other thing is, historically, you know, these forests, forests are complex. It's not necessarily, you know, there's aspen sands that are pure aspen, but even within that, there's patches of oak, patches of red maple, mm. patches of ironwood. Um, and so even you could have a stand that didn't really have a lot of aspen to begin with. And so gotcha. you can't necessarily expect that whole 80 acres to be thick of it, full of aspen. It may be patchy because... And, and you may not know that, you know, hey, you'll come there in 10 years, shows up on Onyx Hunt and be like, what is this about? Like, it's patchy in here. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, me who set the sale up, it's like, well, there was one clone over there. It wasn't that big. And we're looking to regenerate oak, birch, and aspen. And aspen will be a component. Aspen will be patchy in here because that's what it was when we harvested it the first time around. Mm -hmm. It could have been typed as an oak stand for all practical purposes, knowing that there was diversity of aspen pockets within it. So when it gets cut, it'll be patchy to aspen. So it really, you know, I know what the previous stand was because I set it up and I it, I fully expect to have patchiness going forward. And, you know, uh, times of the year, I think, you know, if, it, if it's cut and it's a really wet time of the year that the logger is in there and, you know, you don't want this to happen, but, you know, there could be some soil compaction 
Um, you try and minimize that through sale administration. But if there's on clay soils and it gets too wet and they're, and they're in there when they shouldn't be, that clone, you know, root, you know, soil compaction is a serious business, a serious problem, and, and that'll and the, the trees will suffer. Everything will suffer if that happens, and so you don't have good regeneration, uh, the regeneration you would expect. And the other thing I would say is on some of these clay soils, it can be really clay can be, you know, there's a lot of nutrients in clay, but it's hard to actually pull it out. They're bound up so tight. Yeah. So and, and it's it's really wet or dry. It can be super saturated or bone dry. And so we have aspen clones that just do not look that good on, on clay soils. And based on the topography, I, I think what happens is they get really wet, super saturated, and then they get really, really dry. And it's just really hard on trees to kind of grow in that situation. And so when we're setting those timber sales up and we're getting you know fairly low volume per acre, it's like, boy, are these, these stands in decline or what's going on? And then you start looking at the historic harvest records and they basically cut the same amount of timber that we're cutting. And, and it's just sort of the nature of how clay can be um, so I, yeah, those are some of the, the, the very, uh, various ways that you see Aspen come back in different levels. I, I think, you know, it, it's just the previous story of what you were dealing with tells a, a real, you know, insightful story about what's going to be in 10 years. And again, the hunter just shows up like, wow, what are the loggers, what are the forestry department doing here? This doesn't yes, make any yes. sense. <laughs> and so, you know, it doesn't always come back as well as you'd want. Um, and right. natural regeneration is sort of a gamble sometimes, but in Aspen sometimes is just going to be a component of the stand. It's not going to be everywhere thick 8,000 trees per acre. It might, you know, be more red maple over here, birch over there and Aspen over there. Yeah, no, that that's a great point. That's great insight. Cause I, I don't know that I'd, I, I probably hadn't considered all those factors, but yeah, it's, you know, as much as we love our maps and and the forestry data is getting better and better, and you look at it, and you okay, I'm I'm gonna go in here, and Onyx is telling me it's gonna be it's gonna be an aspen stand, and you know, but it's it's never that clear cut, you know, in in the real world, the natural world, there's there's so much diversity and variation that takes place. So that's where going in and exploring makes a lot of sense. But again, what was there to begin with, we don't. We don't know that. Yep. So, yeah, and, I will and, no longer walk in there and say, what the heck did Mike do in here? <laughs> yeah, well, I say that sometimes, too. I mean, regenerating trees and growing trees, it's just always, you know, recruitment. That's not a perfect science, right? No. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It, the more I know, the less I know. But, you know, and, and so when you see patchy cuts, it'd be like, and it was a clear-cut prescription, it might be like, well, what are they doing clear-cutting this if it didn't really come back thick to aspen? But, well, you know, we're finding a lot of success in oak and, you know, red maple and birch all need a lot of light. And we're we're looking at regenerating a lot of those species through the even age slash clear cut technique. And it's been quite successful based on regeneration counts. So, you know, all those species that are sort of in those, that, that bag of aspen are all, will benefit from, a, you know, uh, a lot of sunlight and, uh, and kind of open growing conditions. So we're, yeah. they're all treated the same. I think that aspen would be considered a resilient or hardy species i mean based on the way that it regenerates but correct me if i'm wrong there i'm just curious like are there what factors is there anything that can come in and outside of what we just talked about is there anything that could come in and like totally you know stunt uh an aspen stand from regenerating or like what threats are there to regenerating aspen stands i would say we have seen some issues where uh we are really wet uh, summer or fall, like if, if a sale gets cut during the summer and we get a lot of rain and some of those clay soils can really pond up and hold at the regenerate, the very sensitive regeneration period we're getting, that I think it's just this really random window. Like you're harvesting the stand every 50 years, and if it just happens to be really wet going into the fall, I think you can actually sort of swamp out some patches of a, of a sale and you get like a bull rush or whatever coming in. So I think just 
Uh, water table changes uh, uh, mm. can be can be, but again, it's hard to predict any of that. And generally, I think that's yeah. a pretty minor component. But it, I will, I do see where I think, boy, just the timing of the the, the rain and just what the regeneration period is. Uh, I would say, you know, hypoxylin canker is a, is a, a disease that hits. It's the largest killer of asthma, I think, in North America, and so it's just uh, it's it's a fungal disease that. Um, Kind of can get into these trees on stressed sites and actually lead to you know just dieback and small diameter growth and just stem density reduction. That's what we're seeing on some of these these clay sites where hypoxylin canker is always a component in some areas. I think where the trees are more stressed, you, you just see less density and uh, more issues of just mortality from hypoxylin canker. And we have the forest tent caterpillar, which is just sort of a mm. well, we're overdue for the forest tent caterpillar. Wait, it doesn't is, that the, is that the is that the army worm? Yeah, AKA yeah, which we haven't had in a long time. It's usually on a yeah. What's the deal with that? They used to say that was like a every seven years, but I haven't yeah, seen them in I th- over a decade. <laughs> I think you know. I th- well, from what I've heard from the forest health folks, I think these some of these wet springs is, is just they don't handle that moisture in the spring well, and I think oh. there's mortality. So I think uh, a wet spring has prevented the population uh, from building up. I'd say we're way overdue. I mean, it's been a long time since we have a mass. And I, I'm not looking forward to it, but I'm just, right, yeah, things right. have. I mean, for anybody that, that doesn't know about that, like, it, it's weird because that was like a big, I just remember that being kind of a big thing growing up. And, like, I recall, like, being in high school or middle school, like, in the middle of summer golfing at Lester Park Golf Course here in Duluth, and, like, there's no leaves on the trees. I mean, they will literally, when there's a bad year, they come in and they, I mean, they take the green out of the woods, basically. It's unbelievable. And now, unbelievable. yeah, we haven't had them for a while. I can't imagine. Yeah. Were, were you there when there was any bad, like, outbreaks of them on, on in the county? I was, yeah. Okay. Yeah, when I got here, it was, like, just like you said, it's, like, late fall. I mean, there's, like, no green. It's just crazy. Yeah. And we've had sporadic outbreaks on the county yep. forest in the last half a dozen years, but really spotty here and there. So that's a stress on the tree. I mean, it doesn't kill yeah. them. It can if it really hits them over and over. But I would say, yes, asthma is extremely resilient. I mean, it's an early successional, fire-adapted. Yeah. It comes in thick. It's a numbers game. So they're, they're pretty tough. Yeah, those, those aspen are. And we're, frankly, we're growing the aspen resource on the county forest just because it tends to, in the absence of getting oak back well, or uh, it, it volunteers, it seeds in, it, it, uh, it's, it's a growing resource on the county forest. Wow. Very cool. Well, we're uh, we're getting close to the end here. I do want to to give you a chance to plug um, at the very start of this conversation. We talked about Barron's Habitat, and we maybe mentioned Sharptail Grouse at that time. You're on the board of the Wisconsin Sharptail Grouse Society. They are one of those critical habitat species that use Barron's Habitat. Maybe just give us a give us an update on uh, what's going on in the world of Wisconsin Sharptail Grouse. Yeah, happy to. Uh, I there's, there's sharp tails on the Bayfield County Forest, which is really exciting. Most of the, pretty much all the sharp tails, not quite all of them, but uh, the sharp tail range historically covered most of Wisconsin, and the yeah. last stronghold now is the Northwest Sands in Northwest Wisconsin. So there's various properties, state properties, Forest Service properties, and some county properties that are holding populations, but it's it's a general decline. I mean, there there it's sort of a few percent a year just like a lot of bird species sort of in decline yeah. and it's, it's habitat related and so um, we have birds on the county forest and uh, I've gotten pretty fired up about trying to make sure we keep them here and maybe help them grow a little bit if we can turn the tide from negative two percent to positive two percent I'd say that's to be a huge win so uh, we, we uh, have uh, barons uh, current barons and it has birds on it 
and we're creating another one to try and provide. What's happening is these birds are isolated, and, and the good habitat is too far away from each other, and so you get genetic inbreeding, and you have subpopulations that are pretty small. And when you have a small population, they're more vulnerable to, you know, uh, a wet spring or predation. It's just, you know, you lose a couple yep. of clutches and all of a sudden, you know, that local population can really struggle. And, and there's not just resiliency spread between the, the population. So we have scattered populations across the northwest sands. And some are more resilient and larger than others. And Nemecagan Barrens has quite a few birds on, which is great. Crex Meadows is starting to really, in the very southwest part of the northwest sands, has got a robust population that's growing. But we have a small population, and we're trying to figure out how we can best serve the needs of those sharptails within the parameters of a working forest. We're going to have most of the acreage is going to be working forest, but that doesn't mean we can't provide good habitat, barrens habitat. So the county started a research project with the Natural Resources Research Institute out of University of Minnesota Duluth Avian Ecology Lab to look at what are these birds doing on the landscape. And so by doing that, we are putting GPS uh, backpacks on these sharp tails and we're trapping them in the spring and we've trapped birds on adjacent properties, the Forest Service some, and some industrial timberlands and then our forest to kind of see what what is it the birds are doing. We don't know a lot about the sharp tail use in forested conditions, small habitat size, and so it's applied research, I would say. Uh, how can that inform future management? How can we tweak the rolling barrens? How can we maximize the quality of the postage stamp that we are we have for them because they're a critical part? And if we can keep sharptails, that's an umbrella species. There's a lot of plants and other wildlife species that if you have sharptails, you have all these other species too. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of this keystone species. If you have sharptails, that means you have a lot of other important species too. So that's sort of the goal. If we have sharp, it's not all about sharptails. Yeah, it'd be great to have sharp tails. It is, but we also want these other species too. So right. we talk a lot about sharp tails, but that doesn't mean we don't care about all the other species underneath it. So it's been really exciting. Uh, Bayfield County, our department funded a lot of the research based on you know my advocacy and buy-in from the forestry committee and my boss to say, hey, yeah, we have these birds. What are they doing? We don't know much about them. And it's really been great to, to see you know with these GPS backpacks that transmit a point every four hours how they're using the landscape. And so we're in the early stages. We're in the second year. You know, the technology of, you know, longevity of the backpacks and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, how, uh, you know, some, a couple of packs have fallen off the birds. And But we have five on air now, and, and I'm really hoping we can get these collars to stay uh, going throughout the winter. Just how are they moving through the winter? What's yeah. habitat changes? It'd be great to see what dispersal rates look like, those young of the year you know, they tend to move and, you know, how to, and, and unfortunately we didn't capture any females. I mean, obviously the most important bird to get would be the female. And we tried and we tried and we tried and we ended up getting males, but the males will tell us some stuff too. And this is an ongoing project, but yeah, we're trying to develop a baseline data. What, what are sharp tails doing in the forested condition, especially on the Bayfield County forest and what can we learn and how can we help that population? And the Wisconsin sharp tail grouse society has helped us fund uh, some of the the, uh, the collars, and um, there's just been a lot of general support. And I think a lot of excitement from the wildlife staff at the DNR and even the research folks. They've never never, never collared any sharp tails before, and so I think we're all sort of excited to see how, how we can help these birds. And, and we're doing active management in the core, and we're opening up our core property. Even right now, I flew the drone out there, and there's a timber sale in there, and so we're giving them more available habitat and it's just really neat when you have birds with 
GPS backpacks on and you're opening up habitat within their home range, it'll be interesting to see how those birds are moving across the landscape now that those trees have been removed like today, yeah. you know, and we can get that data tomorrow. And, uh, you know, we're hoping yeah. as they move into the adjacent rolling forest, the rolling barrens, how we can make that rolling barrens most, the most effective it can be for these birds based on actual real-time data that these birds are giving us. So I really hope it's a long-term project. And that project, that research isn't done, you know, in a vacuum. It's going to inform our management all the time. And so that's an exciting thing to be a part of. Yeah, definitely something something that I've shared from time to time on the podcast. Again, it's, I mean, there's no hunting season. There used to be a hunting season on, on Wisconsin sharptails. At this point, they're non-huntable species, but obviously there's a lot of folks invested in and just have a passion for the bird and interest in the bird and the habitat and all of the other species that utilize that habitat, as as you mentioned. But it's cool, the the close proximity of it. And again, it's maybe there's something to it. Just It's not necessarily the first bird you think of when you think of, of northern Minnesota and northern Wisconsin, but they're, uh, they're kind of a star in that way, I think. <laughs> yeah, and we're trying to get the word out to, uh, you know, social media. I think there's a cool story there. And, you know, Nick, you and I have hunted them out in North Dakota. And, yep. and it's great to see them as a huntable population. And, I mean, I'm all for trying to get a po- huntable population here. First and foremost, we've got to just work on turning the tide. And a great success story would be to have a limited harvest here. We're just, I don't think we're quite there yet. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, just being able to, you know, go hunt them, it's really got me fired up to try and do what I can to make sure they stay here too. And I just don't think a lot of people have are aware of it. And it's, boy, if you can watch them dance on a lek in the spring, it will change your life. It's just a, a special thing to see those, those little birds do their dance. It's uh it's really neat. And, and to see it in the County I work in, it's just extra special. That's the forest I'm helping manage. Yeah. I'm trying to help these birds do what I can. And then to watch those little guys dance and try and entice the, the, the hens in, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a great, I mean, I can go on and on about how great my job is, but you know, those are the kind of things that, you know, really fire me up to kind of keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, it is abundantly clear that you've got a passion for the natural landscape that you work in and the wildlife that inhabit it. And, uh, I know it, it gets me fired up and it inspires me a lot. And a lot of the tidbits I've probably shared over the years about grouse hunting and forestry, uh, Mike, you've had a pretty good, pretty big influence on me in that regard. So I appreciate that. I know the listeners do. Uh, thank you for taking some time to join us on the birdshot podcast. This was a blast, man. I will, uh, I will look forward to your next appearance on the show and until then uh probably get some hunting in eh yeah absolutely looking forward to the fall <laughs> all right buddy wisconsin sharptails website uh wisconsin we're just revamping it so okay. uh folks time in we're uh, on uh instagram i think with wi sharptails, sharptails yeah i'll link that up yep wisconsin sharptail grouse society.org i think is what it is but we're just we got some new designs, some merchandise, trying to get some momentum uh, for these birds and habitat. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's an exciting time for sharp tails in a lot of different ways. Got it. Good deal, man. Thanks again for taking the time, and uh, appreciate you coming on the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, and share, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Hey, everyone. 
This is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.